and what belongs to us because of the wonderful work that he did on our behalf. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We bless the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, if you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We've been teaching a series on the subject of faith for the last number of weeks. And we want to continue along that line this morning. So I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Jesus gives us what I believe to be the most concise and descriptive words on what this thing called faith is and how it works than any other in the scripture. I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 11 verse 12 to get the context of uh, the real important things that Jesus told us. And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he, speaking of Jesus, was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now skip down with me to verse 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they're coming by that same place. As they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Now this can be translated a number of ways. Uh, my particular favorite is have the faith of God. And from that we coined the phrase, the God kind of faith. Well, the faith of God would have to be the God kind, wouldn't it? What other kind of faith would God have other than the God kind of faith? Now, folks, before we go further and, and take this apart, please notice that Jesus, by answering the way that he did, just as much as he has said so far, have the faith of God, he's telling the disciples, he's revealing to the disciples that they can change things in their physical lives just like he changed something in his. Most of the church world seems to have the idea that if anything's ever going to change, it's going to be on God's part. But God never changes. God never alters what he has said. He never backs up from it in any way whatsoever. We know from the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God made man in his own image after his own likeness. Those words literally mean he made man an exact copy or duplicate of himself. And he gave them authority. He gave mankind authority over the works of his hands over all the earth. Now notice Jesus didn't pray about this tree. Jesus doesn't talk to the Father about this tree. He exercises authority over it. He recognized that God didn't make any tree to not be fruitful. And so since it's operating contrary to God's original plan and purpose and intent, he simply curses the fig tree. And by answering the next morning to the disciples, have faith in God or have the faith of God, 
he's telling every one of us, we can use the same authority on the earth that he used to curse the fig tree to remove unfruitful circumstances in our lives. That means that we are able, it would have to mean that we are able through this God kind of faith to change circumstances or, uh, or conditions of poverty in our lives to prosperity. We would have to be able to change circumstances of sickness in our body to, to circumstances of health and healing. It would have to mean that any unfruitful circumstance, anything that holds us back from God's original intent, which is for us to prosper and be in health in every respect, for us to walk in victory in every respect, anything that hinders, any condition or circumstance that hinders that has to be under our control to change. So Jesus said, have the God kind of faith, and then he tells us what that kind of faith does or how it operates. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Well Jesus spoke to the tree. Now they're in a place where there's a mountain that they can see. And so Jesus says whosoever shall say unto this mountain. It doesn't just work on trees. It works on anything and everything. It works on things that are bigger than trees. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice the first thing he mentions about the God kind of faith is what they witnessed in his operation against the tree, and that is the words that we speak. The words that we speak. In other words, if we're going to exercise authority over unfruitful circumstances and conditions in our lives, it's going to have to be through the things that we say. Through the things that we say. Now, notice the only condition he puts here is not doubt in his heart. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, the heart is the spirit of man. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 4, Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart and identifies it as the spirit of man. Well, we know their spirits are hidden. But what specifically are they hidden? Is our spirit hidden from? Well, the answer to that is it's hidden from the five physical senses. It's hidden from the five physical senses. Now, folks, the principle of the words that we speak, or, or, or better, or maybe a better way to say that is the exercise of authority through the words that we speak, is an eternal principle. It's the way God created the world to be. God brought the world into being by the words that he spoke. He made man in his own image and after his own likeness for the purpose of having authority on the earth through the words that we speak. Now look with me to Matthew chapter 12. I want to show you that Jesus talks about this not just in the area of faith, but concerning all of our lives. I'm going to start reading in verse 33. The context is that the, uh, the Jews, the religious leaders, have spoken against the Holy Ghost being the source of the power that Jesus utilized to heal a blind man. They said, uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the healing of a blind man. It was casting the devil out of a certain individual. And they said that Jesus was casting out devils by the power of the devil. And Jesus, in refuting that, brings us to verse 33 
Jesus said, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. Jesus is speaking against hypocrisy here. The Jews were the hypocrites who would say things about wanting to serve God and obedience to God and such and such. But then the way they acted and the other things they said at different times didn't bear out what they said was their true desire. Jesus goes further and says in verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, remember the heart's the spirit of man, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of your spirit come the words that govern us. Let's keep reading. He went on to say, a good man out of the good treasure. The word treasure is the word deposit. A good man out of the good treasure or deposit of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure, same word deposit, bringeth forth evil things. Now, Jesus is clearly saying you can't have an evil heart and speak good words and expect that to work. You can't have a good heart and speak evil words and expect good things to come. But notice the phrase that he uses. See those two words, bringeth forth? He says, a good man will bring forth out of his heart good things. He says, an evil man out of the evil deposit in his heart will bring forth evil things. This word, it's one word in the original Greek. And the word that's translated bringeth forth means to expel. It means to eject, to cast something out, to throw something away, or to cast something off. It's talking about from the spirit of man, we speak forth or bring forth or eject from within us those things that will produce according to the deposit that we have within our own spirits. Now, the deposit has to be the word of God. The deposit of a good man has to be the word of God. You remember in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, God giving instructions to Joshua to take over as the leader of the children of Israel in Moses' stead. He says, this book of the law, this word of God, in other words, shall not depart out of your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth. How does something not depart from your mouth? As soon as you say it, it's gone. So if something is not going to depart from your mouth, it means you're going to keep saying it. That's the only meaning it could possibly have. This book of the law shall not depart from thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. The Bible has a lot to say about meditating in the Word. Now, Eastern religions promote meditation as some kind of vehicle where you sit in a place and empty your mind of all thoughts so that you can receive information from evil sources. They don't know that they're evil sources, but they are. But Bible meditation doesn't have anything to do with emptying your mind. It has everything to do with filling your heart. See, the words that you speak, you hear. It's not enough just to hear somebody else speak. We speak to, each, to ourselves every day. Everybody talks to themselves. You ever been riding in the car and somebody come up beside you and catch you talking to yourself? 
Well, it used to be before they had car seats, you could look down at the front seat and act like there was some child or something you were talking to. But that doesn't work anymore. But the reality is we talk to ourselves every day, all day long. Well, what do we say? What are we saying to ourselves? A lot of people beat themselves up with their own words. But folks, you need to know this. You listen to your words more than you listen to anybody else's. Your words speak to you more than anybody else's. And you believe your words more than you believe the words of anybody else. That's why it's so important for us to speak the word of God. God knew how this worked. He ordained it to work this way. So he's encouraging us. He's instructing us to speak the word so that we come to the knowledge of what God has said, not just what we think about ourselves. And folks, the words that we speak to ourselves, the negative words that we speak to ourselves at least, are always sourced or originate from our five physical senses. An evil man speaks what he feels. An evil man speaks what he thinks that contradicts God's word. But a good man speaks the word no matter how he feels. That's the good deposit he's talking about. So he said, this book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, after you speak the word to yourselves, after you plant the word of God in your heart, deposit it in your spirit, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou, then thou shalt have good success. The Bible doesn't even say God will prosper you. It says you make your way prosperous. Now, why do we do it? Why is it that we bring success and prosperity to ourselves? Because God created man to have authority. You're the one that has authority. It's your words that change the circumstances of poverty in your life. It's your words that change uh, failure into success. Now, God gives us the means whereby we can do that according to his will. But it's still our words that count. So back to Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 12, rather. A good man out of the good treasure or deposit of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure or deposit of his heart bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. The word idle is the word worthless. We'll have to answer for things that we said contrary to the word. Now here's the reason why, verse 37, For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Turn back with me to the Old Testament to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, you'll be familiar with the first few scriptures that we read, beginning in verse 20. It says, My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. There's the work of the Spirit again. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying the same thing that he told Joshua, just in different terms. He told Joshua to speak the word of God continually. Here, the Holy Spirit tells us to attend to the Word. Keep our focus and our attention on the Word of God. 
just as speaking the word of God in Joshua 1.8 to put it into your heart, meditating, in it there, med- meditating therein day and night, just as that brings us to prosperity and success that he describes to Joshua, it brings us to health and life when we attend to his word, when we keep it in front of our eyes. When we, what that means is we see ourselves with what the Bible says is ours. See, the more you speak, the more you see. The more you speak God's word, the more you speak of the things that the Bible says belongs to us, the more and more you'll start seeing yourself with them. You'll imagine yourself as victorious. You'll imagine yourself with success. You'll imagine yourself to be healed. Now, folks, God created the imagination of of mankind, the imagination of the mind. He created that to help us take take hold of his blessings. But we have to imagine according to what the Word says. That's why speaking the Word is so important. As we speak the Word of God, it goes into our hearts and it affects our minds. It brings us to a place where we see ourselves with what the Bible says is ours. Now, we usually stop reading in verse 22. We usually stop reading where it says, For they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. But let's read a couple more verses. Verse 23, keep thy heart with all diligence. He's talking about the Spirit again. Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the Spirit of man, the mouth speaks. Remember, Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty-three 23, that the qualifier was not to doubt in our heart, but rather to believe in our heart. According to the deposit of the Word of God that we've spoken to ourselves and speak to ourselves again and again and again. He says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Remember what we said about that Greek word that's translated, bringeth forth, in Matthew chapter 12? This word means exactly the same thing in Hebrew. It means to eject or to expel, to cast off from yourself. And the Bible is telling us that what comes out of you determines what you will have. Now, the you I'm talking about is not in your flesh. The you I'm talking about is the hidden man of the heart, the spirit of man. Keep your heart with all diligence. That indicates that there's going to be some kind of struggle. That indicates that there's going to be some kind of resistance. That indicates that we're going to have to put forth some effort. Otherwise, keeping your heart would be a simple thing to do. Without resistance, without opposition... How tough could it be to keep your heart with all diligence? We wouldn't have to exercise ourselves toward that much in any way whatsoever. But because the physical realm around us, which is inferior to and was created by the spirit realm that we cannot see. Everything in the physical realm tries to pull you into speaking according to the things that you see and feel in the earth. Or in your body or in your circumstance. That's why the hidden man of the heart must be fed with the word of God. That's why the hidden man of the, of the heart must meditate by speaking in God's word, speaking what God's word says about us over and over and over and over every day and every night. He's telling us that if we'll make the word of God our lifetime project, then the things that will be produced by what we say 
will bring life and blessings. So he said, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Notice what those issues or how those issues come. Verse 24, put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Perverse lips means contra uh, contrary or contradictory. So what he's saying is the way to keep your heart with all diligence is to ensure that you never say anything contrary to God's word about any situation you find yourself in. Now, a lot of times we don't know what God's word says. That's why we attend to it first and foremost. That's why that puts us in a situation or should put us in a situation. God's intent is that the first thing that we should do is to find out what his word says and hold on to that. Hold on to that because we know how the principle works. When Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, that implies there's going to be a struggle involved. That implies there's going to be something that tries to influence us to speak contrary to the words of faith when we spoke to the mountain. Or whatever your circumstance is. That's what Paul told Timothy about fighting the good fight of faith. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. He said, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. Now, Timothy's already saved. He got saved as a part of Paul in, uh, in Paul's ministry. Paul talked about him being his son in the faith. So he can't be telling Timothy to get saved. Timothy's already saved. But he's telling him that the fight of faith, the good fight of faith, is the means and the, and the method whereby we can lay hold of anything and everything that God purchased for us through the blood of Jesus. That's how you lay hold of healing and health. That's how you lay hold of success and prosperity. That's how you lay hold of the peace of God no matter whatever is going on around you. And it's by fighting the good fight of faith. Now, he didn't just say, hold on to faith. And lay hold on eternal life. He indicated. He told him. He warned him. There's a fight to faith. There's a fight to faith. Well if faith is the words. The word of God coming from our spirits out of our mouths. Then that fight is about trying to keep the word of God from being spoken by us. That's where the fight is. That's where the fight is. Now folks I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, we, we're going to have to set this up and give you some background for it, for it to have the impact that it should. You remember how God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. There were the, the ten plagues against the gods of Egypt. God showed through these ten different things that took place. He showed his superiority over all the gods of Egypt. He proved himself to be greater than Pharaoh and greater than Pharaoh's God. So the children of Israel come to the, the Red Sea. Pharaoh has since changed his mind about letting them go. And he's gonna, his plan is now to slaughter them all. He's operating out of grief because his oldest son died as a, a result of the last plague where the Passover was instituted for Israel. Well, God instructs Moses to stretch his hand out over the water and divide the sea. And he does, and it did. 
and Israel went across on dry ground. Then the pillar of fire that was protecting Israel from Pharaoh's armies was lifted and Pharaoh's armies came after the children of Israel trying to go through the Red Sea themselves where it departed. But when they got halfway through, apparently the, the waters came back together and drowned them all. In the space of two to two and a half years, Israel is led by God to the promised land. Moses is their leader. He brings them to the edge of the promised land. And Israel is instructed by God himself through Moses to take one person from each of the 12 tribes of Israel and send them into the promised land to spy out the land. And you remember the story how that they come to the place where they see that the land had flowed with milk and honey. It was the most prosperous and fertile land and productive land that they'd ever seen, probably ever would see. But they also saw that the cities in that place had walls around them. They saw the armies of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and whoever else was in there. They interpreted that. Now, now get how this worked, folks. From what they saw, they interpreted or concluded that the people of the land were stronger than they were. Now, folks, let me say right up front, they were right on that. Israel didn't even have an army. They've just come out of slavery. They haven't spent the last two to two and a half years putting together an army and drilling, doing military exercises and that type of things. So they were exactly right that the people in the, the promised land were stronger than they were in and of themselves. But what about the God that parted the Red Sea for them? What about the God that had shown the ten plagues? What about the God that had shown himself greater than Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods? Egypt sure wouldn't have any trouble taking the promised land. Their military strength was such that they'd have been able to overcome the, the people in the promised land. They would have found a way to breach the walls around the city of Jericho. But because God was with Israel, the strength of Pharaoh's army meant nothing. So why did the strength of the armies in the land of Canaan, the promised land, mean something now? Well, the answer is very simple, and that is the people are going by what they see and measuring themselves by the circumstances rather than what God had promised. So 10 of the 12 spies bring back an evil report saying, now remember an evil man out of the evil deposit of his heart bringeth forth evil things. Numbers chapter 13 says that they brought up an evil report of the land by saying, we be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than us. We are in our own sight as grasshoppers and so are we in their sight. Their words came out of the abundance of their heart. And what they had planted in their heart was whatever the circumstances look like, that has to be the way that it is. Now folks, you know as well as I do, that's the way most people live. Even Christians. They bounce from one thing to the other and say, well, whatever God's will is, it'll be done. Well, wasn't it God's will for Israel to take the promised land? That's what he said. He said, I'll bring you into the promised land. But they didn't go into the promised land. Why? Because of what they said. 
instead of them saying what God said, which Caleb and Joshua do when the 12 spies come back, they were two of the 12. Caleb and Joshua speak up and say, we can do this. God's on our side. It's not a matter of how strong we are compared to their armies any more than it mattered how strong we were against Pharaoh's armies. God's with us against the Canaanites and the other people just like he was with us against the Egyptians. So those two, seeing the same things, having the same opportunity to be swayed by the circumstances, they chose to speak out of the abundance of of their heart, out of the deposit of what God's word had promised them, out of the deposit of God's words himself. And they were willing to stand in faith and take hold of it. But you know the story. The children of Israel believed the majority report. And so they were sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness. Now Deuteronomy chapter 30 is telling us about Moses' last address to the people. He knows he's going off the scene. He knows he's not going to take them into the promised land. God had told him that, told him that. He messed up one of the types that God was trying to create and show his people because he was angry at the people. And so because he messed up one of God's illustrations, God said he couldn't go in. Might seem a little harsh, but what God was trying to show that Moses messed up was that our promised land is taken by our words because of the work of Jesus. So Deuteronomy chapter 30 is spoken to a people that had been wandering in the wilderness for almost 40 years, if not 40 years already. We don't know a lot of the timeline in some of this, so we don't know how close it was, but we call it 40 years in the wilderness And so Moses is trying to tell the people. Now after 40 years in the wilderness, they are tired of the wilderness. Imagine what they've been hearing over the last 40 years. Some of them may have been old enough to remember that when the 12 spies came back and the 10 of them, including some of their parents or forebearers, when they brought up an evil report of the land, God had to intervene to keep the people from stoning Moses And Caleb and Joshua too because they were the two that were in faith. They were the two that brought back a good report. Because they had deposited God's promise in their heart. They had attended to what God had promised. And so they were willing to take the land. Well God had to defend them. But he said to Moses. This is in Numbers chapter 14 verse 28. He said say to the people. As truly as I live saith the Lord. I will do unto them as they have spoken in my ears. Now that phrase as truly as I live has meaning. What do we know about God's life? Well, in the first place, it's eternal. And in the second place, it never changes. So God is saying, this is throughout the scripture several times, and it always uh, points to and refers to an unchanging eternal principle that God has established. And the unchanging eternal principle that God established that he tells Moses to tell the people is you will have what you have said. What did they say? Most of them said it'd be better for them to die in the wilderness 
than to be defeated in the promised land. So what happens? They die in the wilderness. Everybody from age 20 and up dies in the wilderness. Now, the 10 spies specifically that came back with the evil report, they died that day. They were stricken instantly and immediately for their rebellion and their disobedience against God. They died on the spot. So for 40 years, this next generation has been hearing about what God's purpose was, what his plan and what his will was in the beginning concerning the promised land. They know they're tired of wandering in the wilderness. They've had to fight battles in the wilderness just as much as they would have had to fight battles in the promised land. But even then, God saw them through. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is speaking to a people that have heard for 40 years the failure of Israel, not because God let them down, but because they failed to take God at his word. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, Moses says to the people, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Now, folks, notice that life as opposed to death, blessing as opposed to cursing, is dependent on their choice. Now, if it worked the way that much of the church world thinks it works, that God's in control and God makes choices and whatever God wills to happen will happen, then what's Moses talking about? Moses would have instead, rather than what he said in verse 19 about choosing life, Moses would have said, now your parents messed up. And you might mess up too, but since it's God's will for you to enter into the promised land, don't worry, he'll take you in no matter what. Because after all, the will of God is the greatest thing there is. Well, folks, the will of God is the greatest thing that there is. But whether or not that will of God invades your life is up to you. It's your choice, just like it was their choice. Now, folks, put together some of these things that we've seen. A good man out of the good deposit of his heart, good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things, just like an evil man brings forth evil things. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The issues of life would have to be your choice for life then, wouldn't it? Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. How do we choose? How do they choose? Through the words that they speak. How did Israel detour or abort God's plan to enter into the promised land 40 years before this point in time? By the words that they spoke. So when Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and not doubt in his heart. He's talking about your words too. He's saying, and keep any words from coming out of your mouth that contradict the words of faith that you spoke to the mountain. Now, what is the foundation for us to do that? The last part of verse 23 of Mark chapter 11 very clearly says, but shall believe 
Well, if he's talking about doubting in your heart, he's got to be talking about believing in your heart then, doesn't he? But shall believe in his heart, no matter the circumstances, no matter what we see, no matter the conditions or circumstances around us. But shall believe in his heart that those words that he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Faith works when you understand God's eternal unchanging principle that you'll have what you say. Did you get that? Faith only works when we realize God's unchanging and eternal principle. That as we have spoken in his ears, so shall he do unto us. So when Moses tells the children of Israel, I'm not going to be around for this. But there's a choice for you to make. You've got life on one hand, death on the other hand. Blessings on one hand, cursings on the other hand. It's your choice to make. Well, since the issues of life come from our heart and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, then we make those choices through our words. And it's the only way you can make those choices. So Israel responds to this. Moses goes off the scene. Joshua is placed in charge. God tells Joshua how to be successful as taking over for Moses. And then the people come to him. The people come to Joshua, and they encourage him, and they say, whatever you tell us to do, you get the information from the Lord like Moses did, and whatever you tell us to do, we'll do it. Just as God encouraged, Moses, or God encouraged Joshua to be of good courage, the people say, be of good courage. We'll stick with you no matter what. Well, then God displays his power. The children of Israel come to the edge of the promised land. I, I pr probably should mention this as well. Two spies representing Caleb and Joshua, the two that were in faith, two spies are sent into the promised land, specifically the city of Jericho, which would be the first fight that they engage in. They find Rahab the harlot. Rahab knows who these people are and spills the beans. She says, where have you guys been? We know that this land is yours. Now, these are people that 40 years ago, the 10 spies came back and said, these people look at us as grasshoppers. But that's not what Rahab says. She said, we know that the land is yours because we heard how God parted the Red Sea for you 40 years ago. Well, if they remember after 40 years, what would they have been like 40 years prior? When it was fresh on their minds and it had just happened. Or happened within the two, two and a half years before then. So the two spies come back and tell the people what they said and what they found out. So the people encourage Joshua and tell Joshua to be strong. Joshua, at the direction of the Lord, comes to the edge of the Jordan River, which separates the children of Israel from the promised land. And the priests who are bearing the Ark of the Covenant touch their foot at the edge of the water, and the water parts just like the Red Sea did. And the Bible tells us when it identifies some of the towns and the places that witnessed this miracle. And remember, the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, was a crowd of 2 million by the most conservative estimates, or 7 million by the most generous estimates. So you pick whatever number million you want. It doesn't matter to me. If it was just 2 million people, if they haven't grown at all in those 40 years, which is impossible, but if it was just 2 million people, 
how wide a place would have to be separated for these couple of million people to go over. But if they had multiplied from the original number, whatever that was, there is probably tens of millions that are going to go over the Jordan River. The Bible tells us that the, Reds, that, uh, the Jordan River, when it was parted, backed up 12 to 15 miles north of where they were. And there were other cities and other towns, as well as the people that were dependent on that Jordan River, that their whole lives were disrupted in a moment of time. And the word had to get around that it was God, the God that parted the Red Sea. Now he's here parting the Jordan River. So Israel goes across on dry ground just like they came out of Egypt because the waters were parted. So now the people have committed themselves to Joshua, to whatever God tells them to do, we'll do it. Joshua comes to the edge of Jericho, and they encamp there. And God gives Joshua some very important information about how this victory is going to be won. Now, the, the method of this victory was different than any other battle that they ever fought, certainly different than any battle they had fought before, and nowhere else in the battles that they fight to take possession of the promised land, nowhere is the same instruction given for those other cities that are given to Joshua concerning Jericho. God doesn't always work the same way in every situation. You may have heard how he worked in somebody else's situation and said, that's the way I want it to be for me. Well, you can mark it down. It won't be that way for you then. Because God likes to show himself to be God to us as individuals. So the instruction he gives to Joshua is to have the people walk around the city, the walls of the city of Jericho, one time each day for seven days. And on the seventh day, to walk around seven times. At the end of the seventh time on the seventh day, Joshua would give them instructions to shout. And they committed themselves to do what God said, what Joshua had told them God said to do. But Joshua remembers the reason that they found themselves in the wilderness for 40 years was that there were people that spoke against God's plan, spoke against God's promise. So Joshua imposes on the children of Israel that they can't say a word for the seven days that they're dealing with, Jer with Jericho. Not a word. Well, they go around the first day. That's where most of the people got their first close and personal look at the walls around Jericho. I'm sure everybody was intimidated. I'm sure everybody felt small walking around a wall that archaeologists have determined was 100 feet high and 50 feet thick. Second day, they go around the same way. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Seventh day, they go around. But this time, after the first time, they keep going. The people inside the walls recognize something is different today. They wind up going around those seven times. And then Joshua gives the shout or the command to shout. And the people shouted while the walls were up. And the walls fell down flat. As the as scripture says that the walls fell down flat. Now folks, if the walls are 100 feet high but 50 feet thick, if the walls fall this way, 
flat on the ground. They've still got a 50-foot barrier to cross. But archaeological expeditions have found that the wall is perfectly intact. Not laying down, but perfectly intact. And it just fell straight down to the ground. The ground opened up and swallowed up the wall. Now, I dare say that if each one of us had an experience where we saw a hundred-foot wall swallowed up by the ground itself, that would probably produce a good bit of confidence in us for God and His power, wouldn't you think? Well, here's the problem. You don't get to see things like that until you learn to shout while the walls are up. Most people want to see the walls swallowed up. Most people want to see their circumstances disappear. And then they want to shout. But that's not how this thing called faith works. Now what was the difference in the failure of Israel 40 years early and the success of Israel against the city of Jericho? There's only one difference. And that is the words that the leader of Israel allowed to come out of the mouths of the people. Now, it wasn't necessary, and Joshua's instruction was not to get the people to confess every day for those seven days, I believe the walls will fall. I believe the walls will fall. I believe the walls will fall. They've already committed themselves to do whatever God told Joshua to do if he had just had the courage to obey God, they'd stick with him. So really what they were commanded to do is simply this. They were commanded that they could not speak against God's promise for the entirety of the time that they were looking at the circumstance. The difference between Israel's failure and Israel's greatest success to take the promised land, the difference was what they didn't say. Forty years before they said we can't do it because of the walls that we see around the cities. Forty years later, they're just not allowed to speak. Now, folks, get the, the moral of this story. The really important thing that I want you to see in this is that God's power, or God's word, has power to accomplish whatever he said it would do as long as we don't speak against it. As long as we don't speak against it. Well, then if the good fight of faith is the thing that brings us into the blessings of God, what do you reckon that our adversary, the devil, is going to be doing during that fight of faith? He's going to work overtime trying to get us to speak against God's word. Because by speaking against God's word, speaking words of doubt, words of unbelief, speaking those words will nullify God's plan and purpose and the power that the word of God has to bring the blessing to pass. That's why it's so important for us to keep the word of God before our eyes. Now, folks, before making a doctrine out of this, let's see if we can prove it from the scripture. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship to the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet 
and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, this word virtue is the word power, had gone out of him, turned him about in the press, and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now let's back up in this story a little bit before we go further. Notice it says in verse 27, When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It's the only way faith comes. So this God kind of faith is dependent solely, totally, on hearing the word of God. That's why meditating in the word, by confessing it, saying what God's word says over and over and over again. That's why it's so important. It's building faith in the heart of the individual that speaks it. It's making the good deposit of faith in God's word in their lives. So when she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Because the scripture clearly tells us that this came as a result of hearing of Jesus. Faith was produced. So when she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. That has to be your faith speaking. Just like 40 years before the children of Israel went into the promised land. When Caleb and Joshua said, we're well able to take the land for God is with us. Their defenses have departed from them. That's their faith speaking. Just like when the ten spies went in and came back saying it's a good land, but the people are stronger than us and we can't go up against them. That has to be their faith speaking too. They had faith in the wrong thing. They had faith in their defeat. But it's faith. Unbelief is faith just in the wrong thing. Everybody believes. And everybody speaks. The question is, what do you believe? I've had so many people come to me and ask me to pray for them after healing school. People that aren't part of our church. And they all want me to pray for them, but I have to ask. If we want the prayer to work, I need to know what they're believing for. So I'll ask them, what scriptures are you standing on? And they'll usually say something like, well, I believe God. And tell me a story of how God healed somebody else. And then I'll try to get them back to the word and say, but what are you standing on? What scripture are you standing on for your healing? I've had people say anything from, well, not, not anything really. Well, that's where their faith is. Their faith is in not anything really. I've had other people to say, well, I just believe in all the Bible. Well, folks, I believe the Bible is a true and accurate report. Of everything that God has said and things that have been done that the Holy Ghost reveals to us. But I don't believe in everything in the Bible. 
I don't believe Job's friends were right when they said God brought the tragedy upon Job. Do you? The Bible said the devil did. So I don't believe what they said. I believe what they said is accurately reported. But I don't believe in what they said. And I'm going to be smart enough to take the the things, the word of God that belongs to us and believe that rather than believe what somebody else said. So just somebody saying they believe in the whole Bible, that's not faith to be healed either. But remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. To the degree that you have put the word of God into your own heart, deposited the word of God into your own heart by speaking it and saying it to yourself again and again and again. Wouldn't it be nice if one time, the first time we heard the word, it was already deposited in our heart and just worked great from there on out. Wouldn't that be great? Well, it might work that way if we didn't have the experience with sin and death that we've had in the earth. I'm sure it must have worked that way before the fall. But that's not our day or our experience. So when she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. That's her faith speaking. Just like what you and I say is our faith speaking. Let's keep reading. Jesus said in verse 34, daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Verse 35, while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now, folks, verse 36 is going to determine whether Jairus' daughter lives or dies. She's already died. That's what the report is. She's already dead. But notice Jesus does not say, well, I wish we'd gotten there in time. Maybe if this one hadn't taken so much time to tell us the story. Because you know how women tell stories. Maybe if there had been more time and she hadn't interrupted us, maybe we would have made it. That's not what he said. Jesus didn't say, well, I didn't come today to heal, to raise the dead, but to heal the sick. So I guess it's just, we're just out of luck on this one. Notice it says in verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, Jesus is acting immediately. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. Now, can I give you my translation of be not afraid, only believe? Shut up. (laughs) Keep your mouth shut. And Jairus doesn't say another word throughout the rest of the story. Now, isn't that what Joshua did with the children of Israel? Keep your mouth shut. We're acting in faith according to God's instructions by going around the city one time each day for seven days and then seven times on the seventh day. Keep your mouth shut. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it eat the fruit thereof. Another translation says it this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Many have died for saying the wrong things. (laughs) 
If death and life are in the power of the tongue, if every word that we speak, and remember in uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said every idle word that somebody speaks, they'll give an account for. As I told you before, that word idle means worthless. It means contrary to God's word. It means empty, empty of power. See, God's word always carries power because it is the power of God. So when you're speaking God's word, you're speaking his power into existence. You're bringing forth his power. You're issuing his power from your own heart because that's where you deposited the word. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. If death and life are in the power of the tongue, if every word that we speak either deals according to death or life, then we should really watch our words. That would seem to be an incentive enough to each one of us, certainly is to me, to make sure that no word ever comes out of your mouth that either denies, contradicts, or nullifies God's word. Now, most of us don't start off knowing what God's word says about things to begin with. So when you just get started off, you just need to shut up, period. (laughs) See, there's a shutting up that keeps the word of God at work for you. And there's a shutting up that keeps the words of the devil or the influence of death from coming upon you. People starting off in this this walk of faith, and remember Paul said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. He's saying we walk by faith, what we believe in God's word, and not by our five physical senses. So when you first get started off in this stuff, we have to put an extreme amount of attention into speaking God's word, and we usually start with the areas that we have the greatest need, whether it's for finances or whether it's for healing for our bodies or whatever it might be. We have to undo, in many cases, what our many years of living in this world under the influence of our five physical senses has taught us. Because no matter what your five physical senses has taught you, and folks, every part of education, from the lowest level to the highest level, is education according to the five physical senses. And that creates in us a need to unlearn many, many, many things. So Jesus tells Jairus, be not afraid, only believe. He does not say start confessing for the raising of the dead. Jairus has already said what he believed. If you'll come to my house and lay your hands on my daughter, she'll live and not die. So what is he believing for? He's believing for life for his daughter. From the five physical senses, from the circumstances surrounding the incident, that seems like it's too late because she's already died. Jesus doesn't seem to be too negatively influenced by that. Jesus doesn't seem to be too bothered by the news that she has died already. What does Jesus know that Jairus might not? He knows that even the most difficult and serious and powerful circumstance, in this case physical death, is no match for the power of God. When things look to be too late, they aren't. 
when things look to be too severe? They're not. The devil wants you to think they are. See, the devil wanted those ten spies that spied out the land of, of the promised land. He wanted them to think that those walls were so big nobody could ever get through them. And he was successful in convincing them. But they found out 40 years later that that wasn't true. Folks, God's word's always true no matter what things look like. God's word is never void of power no matter how it seems. No matter how late in the game, God's word is always true. So as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Sometimes you have to get away from the crowd. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Why make you this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Now, folks, mourning death among the Jews was a very, very important thing. Now, remember, Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue, so he is tapped in to the religious leaders of the day. And so his daughter would have a huge crowd of people to mourn and weep and wail. The more noise you made, the more it seems like this person was loved. There were even people that were hired. I don't know if that was the case in this situation, but there were people that would be hired to mourn the death of people to show their importance while they were here. It sounds morbid to me. I don't know about you. But that's just the way that it went. So when Jesus comes and sees all the noise and all the mourning and all the goings on, trappings and all this stuff that's going on, Jesus just simply says, you're a little bit early on this. She's not dead. She's just asleep. Now, folks, if there was one thing that the religious leaders of the Jews knew, it was death. They were always ready to stone somebody for contradicting or breaking the law of Moses. And so when Jesus says this, these people think, who are you and how crazy can you be? Folks, I want you to notice something about Jesus. The Bible teaches us that we should be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. You know what the image of Christ is, or at least it includes? I can't say it's the total thing. But you know what the image of Christ includes? This guy is cool as a cucumber. Nothing rattles him. Nothing shakes him up. There were times where people wanted to stone him. And he very calmly said, I've done many good works of my father. Which one are you killing me for? That's the way I'd like to handle or approach death when it raises its head. Wouldn't you? Jesus comes to a situation here at Jairus' house where the daughter has clearly died. Her spirit has departed from her body. And Jesus says, it's no big deal. She's coming back. Now, remember, Jesus said the works that he did, we'll do also. So you can't tell me, or at least you can't convince me. You can tell me all you want. But you can't convince me that we can't have the same coolness of attitude in the face of the devil's power that Jesus had for himself. And I believe if we did, it would change a lot of the world that we're living in.
could change a lot of people that we live around. Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. What happened to all their weeping and wailing? Now they turned their emotion on Jesus. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out. And folks sometimes you have to put out the unbelievers. When he put them all out. He took the father and the mother of the damsel. And Peter and James and John that were with him. And entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand. And said unto her Talitha Kumai. Now folks this is the magic enchantment. That brings back the dead. All you have to say is Talitha Kumai. But if it's not a young girl, I don't know what you substitute for it. (laughs) Which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Jesus did not take a knee and pray. He did not sweat great drops of blood to make this thing happen. He simply used the authority that God had given him as a human being on the earth and the anointing power of the Holy Ghost that came on him when John baptized him in the Jordan River about three years before this point in time. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. It makes you hungry when you die. Now how are they not going to make this known? Because all the people he just put out of the house, they're still outside. What is it that Jesus doesn't want people to know? Well, what he wants people to know that it was that he was operating as a human being on the earth, the son of man, as he called himself, anointed of the Holy Ghost. He was not trying to prove the point. Neither did he want what his work was to accomplish here on the earth to get muddied up by the concern over whether or not he was the Messiah. Those are things that I would think would be first and foremost in Jesus' ministry. But those were the things he avoided. If people came to that conclusion on their own, he didn't reject them or he didn't put them down for it. But that was not the purpose that he was here on the earth. His purpose that he identified for being here on the earth and doing the signs and the wonders and the miracles is to show God's will, to show the character and the nature of his Father. That's it. But notice what made this thing happen. Jairus hasn't said a word. He hasn't uttered a sound. Jesus did not let him. Of course, he didn't force him. He didn't try to operate according, uh, contrary to his will or anything. I don't mean that. But Jesus kept him from speaking anything contrary to the faith that he's already exercised. The last thing that Jairus said, no matter when the circumstance or the the situation changed, the last thing Jairus said is, lay your hands on her and she'll live and not die. Well, Jesus laid his hands on her and she lived and didn't die. He had to bring her back from the dead to get there, but he got there. Notice the importance of your words. What if Jairus had gone to Jesus and said, Come lay your hands on my daughter and see if anything happens. 
even if Jesus had followed him, which he probably wouldn't have. But even if Jesus had followed him, once the news of his daughter's death came, it would have been all over then. So this proves, this is a New Testament example that proves that the success that the children of Israel experienced going into the promised land as opposed to their forefathers 40 years before and their failure to enter into the promised land. The only thing that made the difference is the words that they spoke. Now under Joshua, I am just as sure as I am of my name that many of the children of Israel were dying to talk about how big that wall was around Jericho. I'm sure their emotions, or at least the emotions of many, if not all, maybe most, were going crazy every day when they saw the size of that wall. But folks, it's not what they saw about the wall that made the difference. It's what they said about it. And so they entered into the promised land just like God wanted them to, just like God had wanted them to 40 years before. And Joshua was wise enough to know that they had to guard the words that came out of their mouth. So he simply said, don't say a word until the walls come down. Or until it's time to bring the walls down, really. They shouted while the walls were still up. I believe there's a lot of lessons there for us. This is what Jesus described as the God kind of faith. Speaking the word of God to your circumstances, not to God, but speaking to your circumstances, no matter what the situation looks like, no matter how you feel about it, no matter what your emotions are, no matter what your mind tells you, no matter what other people tell you. Speaking the word of God and the word of God only. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for making it so clear and so plain to us. We thank you that our words govern our lives. We saw the word of God, Father, that says Jesus, was die Jesus died for our sins and that you raised him from the dead. And so we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and so we declare that we were made righteous. No matter how we feel, we are in your sight, righteous by the blood of Jesus. We saw in your word that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. So we confess with our mouths that we are healed from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. We see in your word that Jesus was chastised for our peace, our material and physical well-being. And so we say that the blessing of the Lord makes us rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. We say that we are victorious in every respect, even as your word declares this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Speaking your word in spite of everything that we see and feel. We therefore declare, Father, that everything we put our hand to prospers. We declare that every battle that we enter into, we are victorious. Through the confession of your word, we declare that we finish our life's course with joy.
we will not be afraid, Father, for you are with us. We are not dismayed, for you are our God. You strengthen us, you help us, and you uphold us with the right hand of your righteousness. And in that righteousness we stand. Oppression shall be far from us, for we do not fear, and terror shall not come nigh us. No weapon formed against us shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against us we do condemn. This is the inheritance that we have as children of God, and our righteousness is of him. We love you, Father. We thank you for never leaving us nor forsaking us. In Jesus' name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Well, if we put ourselves in the children of Israel's place, now that you've spoken your faith in the word, shut up. <laughs> Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.